Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 4. And I saw another mighty angel come down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was as the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he cried, seven thunders spoke their sounds. And when the seven thunders spoke their sounds, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up what things the seven thunders spoke, and do not write these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to hear from your word this morning, Lord, and to learn from it. We thank you that you've given us so much, Lord, and so much... Uh, knowledge about yourself about who we are lord and about the future as well and lord your word is a prophetic word it's filled with prophecy and we are uh, confident and we know that every promise that you make you keep so we look forward to these promises being fulfilled as we look forward to meeting you face to face one day and being with you forever lord i pray that you would use this time to work on our hearts may your spirit be our teacher this morning I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just recapping where we, uh, where we are at, where we've been. So far, starting from the seven seals, we saw the breaking of the seven seals. And we, we remember the, the scroll with the seven seals. And only Jesus was allowed to open or was worthy to open that book. And the first four of the seven seals were the first four horsemen. Okay, we had a white horse that was the beginning of the antichrist the red horse was for war the black horse was for pestilence and for famine and then we had the pale horse which meant death so they were basically the 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 way things were going to pan out over the first part more or less of the first seven years of those seven years then we had uh the the fifth seal which was the the prayers of the saints that had been martyred for what they, they believed in during this time and they were asking for judge, justice from God and God said that he would provide justice but they were to hold on for a little while longer until their numbers were fulfilled. Then we saw the sixth seal and that was the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth and basically the answer to that prayer. The seventh seal basically opened up then for us the seven trumpets okay we found the seven trumpets were contained in the seventh seal and the first trumpet was when fire blood and hail fell upon the earth and burnt a third part of all the trees and all the grass if you remember the second trumpet a fiery mountain falls into the sea and kills a third part of everything in the sea and it becomes red the third trumpet a third part of all the waters become bitter when a star falls from heaven called wormwood and makes all the waters or makes a third of the waters bitter bitter and many people die as a result of drinking that water the fourth trumpet was the third part of the sun the moon and the stars all going dark and then we read about the fifth trumpet and the fifth trumpet was what, what was the first woe remember there were three woes after the first four trumpets we had the final three trumpets which were three woes and the angel gave before those trumpets were sounded the angel gave a pronouncement saying woe to the earth 
for the last three trumpets are about to sound. Now the first trumpet, or the, or the, the fifth trumpet, which is the first woe, was the angel falling from heaven and having a key to the bottomless pit and he opened up the pit and all the demons came out of this, this abyss and caused all types of havoc on the earth. Do you remember they were like locusts and they were like they had the ability of scorpions to be able to sting people and to cause them pain, so much pain that people wanted to kill themselves for a period of five months but they couldn't die. Then we saw the sixth trumpet and the angels, the four angels that were bound in the river Euphrates, evil angels, were let loose as well. And they, they began to stir up the armies of the world and they caused a third of all men in the world to be killed because of warfare, basically. So, we now reach chapter 10. We don't see the seventh trumpet here just yet. There is a gap between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, which is a bit of an interlude. It's a bit like uh, now God's giving us a separate snapshot of, of or some detail about things. Before the seventh trumpet is sounded, we find out a few other things, more specific things. Now, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 says, And I saw another angel, another mighty angel, coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was as the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. I've read, have you read the description like that? In other parts of the Bible, oftentimes you'll, when there's prophecy involved or when they're describing angels or even Jesus himself. Remember John said Jesus had hair like wool and his, and his legs like pillars of fire and he was glowing like the sun. Well, this is a similar sort of thing. Daniel had a very similar um, uh, vision of an angel. But angels are a fascinating subject. If you, if you, when you start reading about angels, and angels are uh, basically all through the Bible, from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden right to the end of the Bible, we find angels in the middle of, of so many affairs, of the affairs of men, doing things, uh, either working on God's side or working on the devil's side. But there are, there are some things that are difficult to understand about angels. Let me ask you a question. How big is an angel? Any ideas about that? Any ideas about how big an angel may be? I remember while I was at university studying physics, I remember one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, famous things that, that, that these guys are working on. At that stage, uh, did anyone, does anyone know what nanotechnology is? Nano, nano means really small, right? So they were working on um, the ability to be able to make circuits. And if most of you know, if you connect you know, wires and you run electricity through them, well, the smaller they can make those wires, the, the, the smaller they can make the circuitry. And now we have computers that you know, you can fit what they used to have in, in the 1960s and 70s that filled up a whole room we can fit in our pockets, right? That's because, of, because technology is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, so you can fit more into it, okay? Well, these, I remember the discussion was at those stages, they had the ability to be able to um, basically knock off at an atom at a time with a special laser they'd created. And I remember that the, um, at IBM, 
had the distinct, uh, 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 what, what, do you, what you would call it, um, the, the fa they had this famous thing where they, they were able to write IBM, okay, um, in letters that were one atom thick. Now, it's, it's impossible to even imagine how they actually did that, but to be able to knock off an atom at a time on a, on a surface and etch it in, and then they, they actually saw it with an electro, electron microscope, how small that actually was. To be able to knock off one atom at a time is an incredible feat in itself. So what they, what they did is um, these, these fellows who had this ability to be able to, to do that sort of work with a special laser, um, then, then asked themselves a question, or someone raised a question, how many angels can we fit on the head of a pin? All right, ever heard that, that question being raised? How many angels fit on the head of a pin? So what they set themselves out to do, they got the head of a pin, they, they cut it off, and they started etching or drawing little angels on this pin. Now these guys must have had plenty of time on their hands. And they filled the head of a pin with literally thousands of these angels. And once they, they finished that job, they got a computer to do it, by the way. They didn't do it all by themselves. They, they designed a quick one. The computer kept, kept copying that, that angel, the picture of that angel. It would have been a very simple one. Um, around and around and around until it filled up the whole the head of the pin and they fit literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these little pictures of angels on the head of the pin and they, they finished the job and the computer finished the job overnight um, and, and the computer the count in the morning when it finished doing its job was you know something like 50,500 and whatever it was so they wanted to you know in the morning they all got there um, all excited and the cleaner had, got, had gone through the night before and they lost the head of the pin. <laughs> it had fallen on the floor. He probably sucked it up with the vacuum cleaner and away you go. They had nothing to prove what they'd done. So how big is an angel though? How many angels can you fit in the head of a pin and how, how big are they usually? Well, the descriptions of the Bible vary. Do they have size? The question, the question should be. Do they have an actual size? In this passage, when we read here, this angel, this mighty angel, has one foot standing in the sea and another foot standing on the earth. Now, either, either that's going to that's make him lopsided because <laughs> the sea is lower than the, than the earth, so he's going to be standing at an angle like that, or he's so big that he's able to... That he's, that's not going to make any difference to him. So this seems like an absolutely huge angel here. There is also an account of when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives. And when he lands on the Mount of Olives, the, the whole mountain splits in the middle. Seems like Jesus is going to come back bigger as well. But how big are angels? In John chapter 9, do you remember the, the account of the, the demons that are let loose from the abyss? John describes as being compared to locusts or, or scorpions. So they can be as small possibly as a scorpion and as big as something like this angel that they're talking about, this angel over here. When Abraham was visited by angels, how big were they? Normal people. Normal people, they looked like people, but they were able to even eat with him at that stage. So we know that some angels are, are the same size as people, some have shown themselves to be tiny, tiny things, other ones are, are huge absolutely huge now think of something else the demon possessed man 
in the book of Luke. Turn, turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 30. Now, just before we read this particular, uh, these couple of verses, Jesus comes across, he's in the Gadarenes, and he comes across this man who's demon-possessed. Okay? And when he asked this man uh, this question in verse, 80, uh, verse sorry, 30, and Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Okay. How many angels can fit into a person? Does anyone know how, how, many, how much roughly a legion is? Because a legion is a, is, a, um, is a Latin word and it means it was representative of a certain number. Any, any guesses? Any guesses? 1,200? Uh, higher? It's in the thousands. A legion was around 6,000. Okay? The legion was around 6,000 and possibly more. So, if this man was possessed by a legion of demons, it means he had probably around 6,000 demons living inside him. Six, think of that for a moment. 6,000 demons living inside one person. It doesn't give you much elbow room. How they were able to live inside that many beings were able to live inside one person makes you wonder, well, how big were they? But maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe they don't necessarily have a particular size as we measure size and space. See, we're confined by length, width and height. Maybe they aren't. Maybe angels aren't confined by the same dimensions that we are. And it may be, it may be something similar to the fact, do anyone know how gas works? If, if we let out some sort of gas in here, it might be uh, gas from the uh, fire, whatever it might be, or natural gas, it, what, what does it do? It actually just expands to the whole width of the room. It spreads itself out. The whole. So maybe an angel is a bit like that. It's given a certain dimension in our physical world and it, and it just fills out whatever space is given. That's how maybe 6,000 angels are, are able to fit into one person. They simply spread out into that confined area. Now, don't quote me on that, but there is obviously a difference between us living in the physical world and an angel. Spiritual beings may not be restricted by space or volume as we are. Okay, so the lesson is, though angels may vary in power, and we see that this angel is called a mighty angel, which means that there are, there are angels that weren't as mighty as him. Though they may be limited and vary in power and their ability, they are not necessarily bound by dimensions as we are. Now John says in verse, this verse 1, he says, I saw another mighty angel. Well, hang on a sec. Another means what? 
that there's a first one, that there's one before it. So I did a bit of a, a look through uh, Revelation and I didn't see another word for mighty angel before that. But I did see a word that was the same or similar. Go to Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Revelation 5 1 says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Cyrus says strong angel. That word strong is exactly the same Greek word as the word mighty that we've just read in chapter 10. Exactly the same word. So strong and, that, strong and mighty are interchangeable words. That is the first time we see a strong or mighty angel being mentioned. So, and, and interestingly enough, this angel is also associated with a particular book. The one we've read has a, has a book in his hand, a small book, and this one is associating himself with the other book, the one that, where the seals were opened. Let's continue to read. John then goes on to describe the angel. He says it's clothed with a cloud, the rainbow was on his head, his face was as the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. You know, it's interesting, today, when people in the world talk about angels, how do they picture them? Masculine, feminine, or, or feminine, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that, that the average person in the world thinks of, a, of an angel as something feminine, something beautiful, something gentle. Okay? And sometimes they even picture them as little children. But the Old Testament and the biblical view of angels is very different. In the Bible, angels are generally terrifying, powerful, and they're pictured as awesome beings. Beings that are able to destroy whole armies, in fact, whole cities at a time. There was even an angel sent by God to destroy Israel. And he killed many, uh, many of the Jews. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was about to destroy the whole of Jerusalem. One angel was about to destroy the whole of Jerusalem. And God said, hold back. The Old Testament and the New Testament angels are terrifying beings. Whenever we find someone visited by an angel generally in the Bible, what do they do? Are they enthralled by their beauty? Do they say, oh, what a beautiful, gentle angel? No, there's normally one response. <laughs> Does anyone know what that response is? They fall flat on their face in fear and trembling when they see these angels. Fear and trembling is normally the, the result or the, the proper response to them. So, John's description here, when he says this angel was clothed with a cloud, had a rainbow on his head, his face was like the sun, his feet were like pillars of fire, he's not a description of beauty here. It's not, we might think of that and say, oh, look, beautifully clothed with a cloud, a rainbow over his head. Uh, this is meant to show how large and how awesome this angel actually is. 
Now, why does God have to send an angel that can stand on both the sea and the land? Why does the angel have to be that big to deliver a little book to John? Why couldn't he just send it with a little angel? <laughs> Ever thought about that? He could have sent it like a letter, postman. There you go, John, there's your, uh, there's your, your little book. Instead, he sends a huge angel to deliver a little book. Now, the answer to that might be clarified in a similar incident that occurred with the prophet Daniel when it comes to delivering a message straight from heaven to a person. Go to, turn to Daniel chapter 10, verse 4. question is, is it overkill for God to be sending such a large angel to be delivering such a little book to John, to John the Apostle? Well, we see another angel in Daniel, and this angel also caused Daniel to fall on his face in fear. And Daniel chapter 10 verse 4, it says, and in the four, uh, in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidakal, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was also like the beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in colour to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. It's a similar description, isn't it? To the angel that visited John. It seems that strong or mighty angels are associated with or necessary for delivering important messages from heaven to man. This is what was happening with Daniel. This angel had come to give Daniel a special message directly from God about the future, about what was about to happen to the world. Not what was about to happen in Daniel's day, but what was going to happen a long way into the future. And this may have something to do with the devil. Look at verse 11. Just go jump down to Daniel chapter 10 verse 11. Listen to what the, this angel says to uh, Daniel. And he said unto me, O Daniel, O man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. Get up on your feet. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But, look at verse 13, what it says, <coughs> But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I, rem and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Chapter 10, verse 20. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. 
And when I am come, gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. Now, what does all that mean? Gabriel, this, this is more than likely the angel Gabriel. The same Gabriel that delivered the message to Mary. Remember? Now, he's, he told Daniel that, Daniel, I've been sent to give you this specific message because you have set your heart to learn about the things of God and you've humbled yourself before God. Therefore, your prayers are being answered and I'm here to tell you what's going to take place. He had been sent by God to reveal the future to Daniel. But it seems that Gabriel's task in getting that message to Daniel wasn't the easiest one. Because he says that the prince of Persia withstood him, which meant held him back from getting his message to Daniel for how many days? 21 days. Now, how can a man, how does a prince of Persia keep or hold back an angel of God for 21 days from getting his message through to Daniel. Maybe because he isn't a man. Maybe because he's an angel as well. And if you look at it, the, quest, the, the question is this, can a man who cannot see an angel withstand an angel for 21 days? The answer is no. But another angel can. When Gabriel was trying to get his message through to Daniel, he met some serious resistance. It would seem from this passage and from other ones that Satan has his legion of demons organised in governmental form around the world as well. And he sets rulers and dominions in his kingdom and they infiltrate and manipulate the course of men and the governments in this world. And this is what was happening in Persia. The devil has set up his kingdoms in the world as well. Do you think when he promised Jesus to give him all the kingdoms of the world that he was actually lying? No. He had control of them. And he was controlling them because his unseen demons were manipulating people. They were guiding certain course of events. This is why Gabriel found it so hard to get through to Daniel. And in this case, the prince of Persia was probably the commanding angel of Satan influencing Persia as a kingdom. It was protecting Satan's dominion over that kingdom, keeping that kingdom possibly or probably the rulership of that kingdom in the dark. Because that's what Satan does. He keeps people in the dark. But then the angel tells Daniel that Michael, and he mentions Michael as one of the chief princes, okay, helped him to get through. Michael literally was in there fighting with Gabriel to help Gabriel get through to Daniel and held, and held off 
Satan's armies. But what does the fact that Michael is one of the chief princes mean? Well, look at Daniel chapter 10 verse 21 again. Gabriel says, But I will show thee, that's to Daniel, that which is noted in the scripture of truth. I'm going to reveal to you what's in God's word. And look what he says. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, whose prince? Your prince. Daniel's prince. So Gabriel says to Daniel, There is none who holdeth, which means there is none who stands strong with me in these matters, but Michael, who is your prince. Now, hang on a sec. How is Michael Daniel's prince? This is an interesting piece of information. Well, it seems that just as Satan has his princes over dominions in this world, just as Satan has his rulers and his archangels over principalities in this world, so Michael has been designated the prince over Israel as their protector. Do you remember in, in Revelation chapter 12 when, when the devil was hell-bent on, on destroying Israel and there's an, a war that, war that breaks out in heaven? Who was the angel that kicks Satan out of heaven? It was Michael. It says that Michael then stood up now turn, to, turn a couple of chapters forward from Daniel to Daniel chapter 12 as well. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. Look what it says. And at that time, which is the end, which is in the end, shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for who? The children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Who are Daniel's people? Daniel's people are the Israelites, the Jews. The Jews that were in captivity in Persia. And Michael was their prince, because Michael is the one who had been designated to stand for the children of Israel. And we find the same thing happening in Revelation. That in the end, Michael stands up and protects the children of Israel. And, and exactly what it says here, Sarah says, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. Well, that is the time of Jacob's trouble. And Michael is responsible to protect the Israelites from being destroyed by Satan. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against material things, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan has his government set up. That's who, that's who our battle is with. And that's what I want to focus on today. Today is really more of a lesson about angels and how and how this whole thing is working together and how the angelic realm infiltrates ours we don't see them but they're there and they're working 
the rulers that Paul talks about being in uh, the darkness of the world and spiritual wickedness in high places are the, the same that probably resisted Gabriel and Michael when Gabriel went to deliver his message. These are the same rulers that have orchestrated mankind being in slavery to sin. These are the same rules that keep men blinded to the truth and try to stop men from understanding what's going on. These are the rulers that seek to destroy man and rob God of his glory. But these are the same rulers, the same angelic beings that were humiliated, the Bible says, when Jesus won the victory on the earth. They thought they could defeat Jesus while he was on the earth. Imagine the spiritual warfare that was going around Jesus when he was walking, when the Son of God had put himself into a human body. Can you imagine the warfare that was happening around him at that stage? But Colossians chapter, chapter 2 verse 15 says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, which principalities and powers did Jesus spoil? He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Jesus, when he won the victory, when he didn't sin his whole life, carried the plan through that God had sent him to earth for, died on the cross and rose again from the grave, he defeated the armies of Satan in this world. The Bible also says that those angelic beings, as well as the angelic beings that are, that are under the command of God, were all created originally for Jesus and by Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, or the preeminent one, over every creature. Listen to this. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Those angels which have set themselves up under the command of Satan to manipulate the course of men and try to destroy mankind and, and, and pull man away from God, ultimately, were created by Jesus, for Jesus. They've just turned their back on God. Now, this angel that John sees coming down out of heaven, this huge, awesome angel, was also created by Jesus. And was created for him, to serve him. And he'd been sent to the earth to deliver a message to John, the apostle, just like Gabriel had been sent to deliver that message to Daniel. Now, this, this angel could very well be Gabriel himself. And he stands on the sea and the land with tremendous power. And verse 3 of Revelation chapter 10 says, And he cried with a loud voice, like a lion roaring, and when he cried, seven thunders spoke their sounds. Can you imagine when a, an angel speaks and it comes across, when he opens his mouth, he, it says he cried out, and out of his mouth comes a sound like a, a huge roaring lion, and seven thunders begin to, uh, begin to, to, to talk. Um, how would you feel? I probably wouldn't be on my feet at this stage. But John has the fortitude to pick up his pen and he's about to write. 
what the, what the seven thunders are actually saying. But God says to him, I don't want you to tell them. I don't want you to write these things down that the seven thunders are proclaiming. Now, why? Why, why isn't John allowed to write down what the seven thunders were, were saying? He could hear them, obviously. He could understand what, what they were saying, but he was told by God, don't write that down. Well, I haven't got the answer to that. There is no answer why specifically God would not or why God did not allow John to write these words down. God's given us a lot of information, hasn't he? God's given us so much information about, about the past, about the present, about who we are, about who he is and also we have a huge amount of information about the future as well. That's why I can preach week after week after week about what God's going to do in the future. But there are certain things that God doesn't want his children to know. There are certain things that he chooses not to tell us. That's his right, isn't it? It's his right as God to choose to give us what information he feels is necessary for us. And there are some things that he feels aren't necessary for us. We can be confident in the fact that whatever reason he has... It's the right reason. It's the, it's the right one. It's the correct one. And I thought of this. While I, was, while I was thinking about what God has chosen not to tell us, I thought to myself, that's a bit, little bit like us not being able to see angels. Now, I'm telling you that there are angels running around doing all sorts of things around the world but we can't see them can we if you can please raise your hand <laughs> I'll have a talk with you but God has chosen not to give us the ability to be able to see angels and what they're doing he could have God could have, God could have given us the ability to be able to see what angels and demons were doing around us but he chose not to I thought to myself, why, why didn't you do that for? Why, why wouldn't have God given us the ability to see? Surely, if I could see the angels doing things around me, I would act differently, wouldn't I? Would you act differently if you saw angels around you? Or demons? Initially, I thought, yes, I would. But then as I thought, it, thought about it more... I began to ask the question, would I? Would it really make a difference? I mean, alright, let's take this premise. If I can see angels and, and I know that they're watching everything that I do, will I do things differently than I do them now? Let's say that we say yes. If I know someone's watching me and I can see them and they can, they can see me, then I, would, I might act differently. But hang on a sec. We also say that we believe that angels are already there and we also say that we believe God sees everything that we do. Don't we? So why should we behave differently? We shouldn't. 
Then the next question is, if I can see angels, if I could see demons, would that change my heart? Would that change the sin that was in me? And the answer is no. The answer is a simple no. If I could see demons and angels and, and, and see all the angelic realm and what was going on around me, it wouldn't change what was in here. It would change what was up here, but it wouldn't change what was in here. And that's the reason God has, has us living by faith and not by sight. Living by faith and not by sight. It's so we what? Why would God have us living by faith and not be able to see everything that was happening around us? It's so that we rely on him. It's so that we can learn to rely on, on who he is and what he's doing. Seeing angels wouldn't change our nature. What does change our nature? It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses a man from his sin and it's the Holy Spirit that's been planted inside that changes me from the inside. I don't need more than that. Actually, yes, I do. I need God's word. God's given us the change from the inside, the cleansing of our sin and God's word to guide our paths. The Bible says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know something? If I could live by sight and not by faith, if I could live responding to whatever I saw around me in the angelic as well as the physical world, I could possibly believe that I would save myself. Wouldn't you? If I could see everything that demons were doing and, and angels were doing, I would probably think, well, I can react to that. I can, I can deal with that. I can manage that situation. And you know something? I'd be falling back in the same situation that I was in before. You'd do exactly the same thing that you were doing before. Because you know why? The Bible says that Satan can disguise himself as what? As an angel of light. So even if I could see angels around me, would I really be able to distinguish who was bad and who was good? I wouldn't. Because if, I, if Satan... Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, how good are people generally at spotting out deceitful workers, false apostles, fake preachers, pastors, teachers, how good are people at that normally? Good or bad? The answer is very, very bad. Normally very bad. Now, my question would be, if we find it very difficult to spot out the deceivers, the liars, the fakers, and everything else that goes along with 
this world we call Christianity, okay, and all the bells and whistles and everything else that people put on to try and prove to us that they're legit, if we find it hard to spot out the fake from the true, how would we find it trying to spot out a fake angel or a demon from, a, from a, an angelic angel? Even harder. <laughs> because Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light. So if he can do it, then his, his demons can do it as well. How much more do you want to see? It's hard enough just dealing with the physical world. Imagine trying to deal with the spiritual world as well. That's the beauty, isn't it? God has chosen us and God has chosen for us to see certain things. So we only have to focus on certain things. okay? And he gives us a book that gives the exact instructions on how to deal with those certain things so we don't become overwhelmed. But even with those instructions and even with the limitations that we have being put on us, we still find it hard to wrestle. Why? Not because the, the angelic world is invisible to us, it's because we fail to put that into practice. We fail to simply follow the rules that God set for us. We may not see the angels working around us. We may not see Satan's uh, plan and, and how he structures things and, and all the stuff, that, but we know how he works. We know the tricks that he plays. We know the lies that he tells. We know why he's here. The Bible says he's here to kill, to steal and destroy. I don't need to see a huge angel coming down from heaven to receive God's word. All we have to do is to follow it. Next week, we're going to be seeing the rest of this chapter. And we're going to see that John is presented with this little book. And the angel tells him, eat it. Actually, God tells him, eat it. Eat the book, it'll be sweet in your mouth and it will be bitter in your stomach. Which basically means that when you first read it, it sounds wonderful. But then when you begin to digest it and you think of the implications of it, you begin to say, oh no. Now John was eagerly awaiting this book. John received the message from an angel that had been sent from heaven. But the question is, how eager are we to get this message? We've got it already. We don't need an angel to be coming down from heaven to deliver us a book. We have it. The question is, how eager are we to digest this book? Are we? Because this is the book that will get us through the journey from today until the end. God has promised it. How ready are we to receive God's word, which we have in our hands already? Think about that. We don't need to be trembling before an angel to receive God's word. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 5 says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. We should be trembling before this word now. Because these are the very words of God that has come from his lips. 
We should be trembling at this rather than trembling at an angel. We don't need to be seeing an angel. We have God's word. Do we tremble at it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that as our Father, you, you watch over us, your children. And you choose to, to give us certain things and withhold certain things from us for our good and for our benefit. Lord, we thank you for your protection over us. We thank you for the blessings that come from your throne each day. And in the midst of all that we know, the spiritual turmoil that happens around us, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us. You could have abandoned us when we were sinners, but now you've adopted us into your family. Lord, we are your children and we know that you love us and you care for us and you want the best for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would always be mindful of Satan's attacks, that we would always be mindful that we are in the midst of a war and that we are not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers and thrones in high places. But Lord, you tell us to put on the armour of faith. And we thank you that we have it. We thank you that we have our sword, which is the word of God, our only, only offensive weapon. I ask that we would, as good soldiers, be always girded, ready for battle, that we would not be complacent and sleeping. I pray that you bless us now as we depart, that we may go into this world energised, equipped to be able to fight the battle and give you the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.